continuing our conversation about intimate partner violence among LGBTQIA plus relationships, we explore the key terms, data, and incidence rates for this violence with Jan Langbein and Jordan Lawson. I'm Maria McMullen. And I'm Ron Corning. And this is Genesis, the podcast. Jan, Jordan, Ron, welcome back to the podcast. When we last spoke with X of House of Rebirth, we focused on the lack of services for transgender women of color. And to expand on that, let's get a picture of just how prevalent that is using some key terms and statistics. So, Ron, I know you have questions. I do. I have I have several questions, and I think it's important, Jan, for people who are listening to sort of first grasp the um, the nature of or the prevalence of violence in the LGBTQ um, community. What does it look like statistically when you compare it relative to domestic violence in heterosexual relationships? Right, right. Well, let me start by saying we know that intimate partner violence is one of the most underreported crimes. Sexual assault and intimate partner violence are incredibly underreported. But the numbers that we are able to kind of glean out of this is one out of every three heterosexual women uh, will know Uh, physical violence from a partner. Um, And the incidence, however, we also know is much higher in marginalized communities. And we are talking today about the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, The studies say that um, where it's one in three heterosexual women, it is uh, 43% of lesbian women and over 61% of bisexual women experiencing the same kinds of violence. Um, the, some, it depends where you're looking uh, with regards to men uh, being the victims. Some places will say it's also one out of every three. I disagree with that. <laughs> I think it's much lower. And, um, and a lot of times, hetero, the numbers that say how prevalent it is with men is not taking into consideration the gender of the abuser. Hmm. But the uh, studies also say that 26% of gay men and 37% of bisexual men are reporting the same kinds of violence. And when we're teaching this, uh, the dynamics, the dynamics are the same. It's all about power and control. Uh, When you throw in, um, it's not about a fight that got out of control. It's about somebody saying, I'm in charge and you're not, and I'll do whatever it takes to keep that balance. But when you're working with marginalized communities, then you layer over different dynamics um, of, you know, prejudice against that community, isolation of that community, fear of being outed within the larger community. So I know that the, the, it is the same but different, if that makes any sense. Well, it's, in, it's interesting because I've said this for a long time, and it's something that a, a lot of us who've been in the closet who come out don't realize. The closet can be a dangerous place. The idea that it's a safe place where you shelter and you hide out until you come to terms with who you are, mm-hmm. what you're doing is, is you're cutting yourself off from your family, from your yeah. friends, you're living in the shadows. Yeah. And so you're not reporting that somebody was violent against you for fear that that will lead to you being outed. Also, Jordan, who's joining us um, again here, Jordan, I think this is important to talk about as well, and that is response from police departments. If a police officer answers a same-sex couple domestic violence call 
and they believe two guys will work it out or two women can't hurt each other, to what end does that help? We definitely think that more education in all professions, but specifically in the law enforcement community and courts, would be really important to the dynamics between same-gendered partner to intimate partner violence, um, or of course, intimate partner violence within, within the trans community. Uh, for example, we do a lot of training on what we call dominant aggressor. So being able to teach the dynamic of how do you notice who is a dominant aggressor or an initiating aggressor, the person who's trying to assert control um, versus somebody who may be reacting to the aggression. And oftentimes law enforcement can get it wrong. They can see somebody who seems to be uh, hysterical or upset or very angry or um, kind of erratic in how they're trying to tell what happened, right? And so they assume that this emotional person must be the aggressor, when in reality, that's the person who's afraid. That's the person who is being abused. For a long time, Jan, in, in, in the space in which you work and most of your time has been devoted, you've probably seen that as it relates to a heterosexual couple where if a man in the relationship is being abused, it also goes underreported, or the perception is she's so small, she can't, she obviously can't hurt him. No, He's you're, a big exa guy. you're exactly right. I think there are a lot of um, preconceived ideas when law enforcement goes into a situation that, it, let's say with two women, and they would assume the stronger or the um, more masculine appearing would have been the predominant aggressor, in which case that may not be the correct answer to this. Mm -hmm. But you're right there. I, I, I think they're trying to do the best they can with what they have, but it is really difficult. It is really dangerous going into these situations. I was just going to add that I think, too, that's working along the assumption of physical abuse, right? Looking for mm -hmm. physical abuse right. or somebody right. being physically abused, which means oftentimes we're overlooking the impact of emotional abuse, financial abuse, isolation from resources and supportive individuals. Humiliation. Humiliation. Verbal abuse. Right. Lack of access to medical care or medical support with needs that are going on. Financial power and control. Yeah. yeah. People are more likely to suffer in silence if there aren't physical signs of abuse. Right. Just like they're less likely to recognize abuse if it's not physical. The point is, your job has been, and, and you've done an amazing job of it, and that is educating people against their bias. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, I have heard women at Genesis, because we provide services to women identified at birth or trans women, um, say, I, I wish he would just hit me in the face. And then I could point to a black eye and say, look what he does to me. Um, it's, it's really difficult, as Jordan was saying, to identify who is the predominant aggressor. What is the situation going on? So that, I think, this is a good opportunity to talk about your work with Police departments, right. specifically the Dallas Police Department. We know police departments all over this country are dealing with a level of being short-staffed, right. right, not having the people they need to to police our streets, et cetera, but also taking on the roles that some have argued police are simply not, um, don't have the capacity to handle the psychological aspects of counseling, the emotional. And so you're in a, an interesting position to, to look at a police force, the resources they have, the people they have, and begin to work with them so that they can identify some of these 
some of these nuances. Right. And I've, I'm so fortunate uh, to have kind of come in on this. I didn't do the work, but I get to benefit from the work. In 1985, two uh, battered women actually sued the city of Dallas. They felt they had not received protection under due process. And there was a, an out-of-court settlement. And part of that uh, decree was that we would all come around the same table, uh, the courts, the police, the service providers, the, you know, the hospitals. And at first, I got to tell you, Ron, it's like, like everybody was pointing at somebody else. This is your fault. You didn't make an arrest. Well, this is your fault. You let them out. Well, this is your fault. You don't provide services enough, enough uh-huh. services. And then somewhere along the line, we realized I can't do my job uh, by myself. I can't do this in a silo um, that we have to have police. I can't, I'll always be sheltering if there are no arrests made. And I'll, they'll always be arresting if there's no accountability at the judicial level. Um, and it's uh, the fact that abuse will not stop until abusers stop abusing. We as a society have to find the impetus for, the t- for that to stop. Talk about a vicious cycle. Oh my gosh. But out of that decree also came the fact that I have been out to every Dallas police recruit class in 30 years talking about not not SOP training, but uh, why you're back at the same house Saturday night after Saturday night, why more police officers are killed answering uh, intimate partner violence calls, um, to whom this happens, why it happens, how it happens, what's an appropriate response. Um, in addition to that, and I think maybe we're going to get into this, uh, either this episode or the next one, uh, Genesis also started the National Conference on Crimes Against Women. We partnered with the Dallas Police, but also uh, with the FBI Behavioral Science Unit to bring in law enforcement from all over the country to be having these kinds of conversations and trainings. Uh, we have, uh, we're actually starting in the next few days, actually, um, at the Conference on Crimes Against Women, and we will have uh, participants from all over the country. Where's the evidence that it's working? Are are there key moments, Jordan, where you you can point to a situation, a case study, where an officer handled something in a certain way and present that even to another department in another part of the country and say, this is how this went down, this is how this was carried through, this was the end result? We frequently hear stories that come directly from our conference of where uh, a group of officers or an officer learned a a specific technique or a specific way of interviewing somebody, maybe trauma-informed interviewing, so that while interacting with the victim, they're able to be um, more on uh, on that person's level and meet that person where they are and therefore gain more information. And that led to a successful arrest or a successful um, conviction. We also, in the community, just have been able to partner with officers Officers more. There are times in which we have had um, officers bring clients to our residential facility, or we've had them um, bring uh, clients to our non-residential. And so we've been able to interact and we can see this true desire to really understand what this person needs and exactly what happened to them. I think oftentimes the, on the scene, law enforcement really struggles with the amount of time that it may take to really space out what happened because these situations are so complex. Yes. Um, but we've really witnessed this desire to really understand what's going on and be able to respond um, more appropriately, more effectively. No, I'm wondering, is it fair to say, Jan, can we acknowledge, and is it fair to say, not every officer has the capacity to fulfill that role of counselor, right. therapist, right. 
How do we deal with that? Well, and, you know, Dallas has, I don't know, 7,000 members of the Dallas police, and you're going to come across people with preconceived ideas that men shouldn't be in relationships with each other, and so what is that response going to be when they come to your house? Um, it's, a, it's a hard thing to do, Ron. It is, we're strange bedfellows, uh, social workers and police officers. We don't even speak the same language, but the more we try and the more conversations we have, the better it is. Uh, one of the things I found early on, and this may be just a Southern Texas thing, uh, but I would recommend it to all service providers, you know, uh, uh, bring the barbecue. Uh, about once a year, we go down to the Dallas Police Department to the Domestic Violence Unit, and we fix them lunch. Barbecue and all the trimmings and, you know, sweet tea and you name it. Now, that could be something else in another part of the country. Mm -hmm. But um, it makes a difference. It makes a difference if you're not adversarial, which historically we've been adversarial. Instead, you're getting to know them. They're getting to know you. Yes. They're understanding yes. the emotional impact of the work you do. And, Correct. And beyond that, um, Correct. the value in saving lives, yeah. really. Bring the be chips and hot sauce. Yeah. That's what I say. Everywhere you go. <laughs> um, what about Jordan also? the probability of an officer who, in their own way, is abusive at home. They don't recognize that behavior in themselves. In fact, like most people who um, act out violently, they're justifying it in some way. Mm -hmm. Then they're called to a scene where they see reflected back to them themselves and somebody who's being accused of abuse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, Ron. We know that domestic violence at its root is somebody who believes that they are entitled to control somebody else, that they are entitled to get what they want um, and, and even to have their needs met ahead of somebody else's. And mm -hmm. so I, I have to make you do it for me in order to get what I want. And unfortunately, there are certain professions or roles that kind of play into that belief system of entitlement or um, allow space for that. And so unfortunately, we are aware of course, that abusers can be present in all professions, specifically in law enforcement. We've offered several effective classes within our Conference on Crimes Against Women and our ongoing um, trainings. Um, we do roll call videos where these short clip videos that we show across the nation at different police departments um, for trainings that do discuss um, kind of the dynamics of the officer as an abuser and kind of point out case studies where this has been true, where an officer was um, convicted of domestic violence or sexual assault um, and trying to just kind of gain that awareness. Mm -hmm. and, we and have allies in this in this work as well. Uh, Mark Wynn, who is a retired um, Nashville police officer, grew up in domestic violence. Uh, we are going to launch at the Conference on Crimes Against Women uh, this week a video that was produced. This is the house where I learned not to sleep, and that happened actually in Lancaster, Texas. Uh, and he left never came back, um, but he had to hear this from another police officer. Everybody who sees me knows I'm going to come in ready to set my hair on fire, and they're like, oh, here she comes again, right? Mm -hmm. What's what's her deal? <laughs> but when a, a man stands up, when a man stands up and Makes says, this is wrong, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I hate having to say that, uh, being the feminist I am, but um, it, it really is the truth. And officers like that, uh, Justin Boardman out of mm -hmm. Nevada, this conference has done that for us. And to your point earlier, they become the voices that are out there. So how do we build those alliances with the LGBTQIA plus community, right? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But no, I, I'm really wondering how do we begin to build those alliances to bring these numbers down? Because I look at these numbers on their face, and they're higher incidents of violence in the 
LGBTQIA plus community than in the heterosexual community. And that comes with the asterisk and it's underreported. Right. So the numbers are much higher than this already high number. Right. I, I, it's going to take more than a shelter. I mean, I know when we were talking to X, why aren't there more shelters? Why aren't there beds? Why aren't we telling people there are beds? That's a short-term fix. Yeah, That's finding a, a place to sleep and stay. Mm-hmm. Yes. For how long, right? Where and do you then go where to do you when go? that's done? And then where yeah. do you go when that's done? And so we're going to have to come together as a society and say we have zero tolerance for it. We have zero tolerance for intimate partner abuse regardless. Well, and again, a bigger issue here is, and it's getting better in, in the gay community over, the, over my lifetime, simply because, I mean, it sounds simple, but shows like Will and Grace, um, same-sex marriage being legalized. I mean, all of those things have been on a continuum of, of progress to allow people to sort of stand where they are and be who they are and speak out if there's a crisis. If you're marginalized, you probably don't have the family support you need to leave the shelter and find another place to live. That's right. Right? Or if you're experiencing in the workplace acts of discrimination, it just, again, piles onto itself. Does it not, Jordan? I I think so. And I think that's why it's on us to be uh, more vocal and more loud about this being a safe place for those people to come and exactly what our services are and exactly how our services um, could support somebody in that way uh, or in these different situations, right? Because if you you are in that community or if you are marginalized, if you are scared, right, it's on us to be more vocal and forward and we're here for you. X mentioned it, Jordan, intersectionality. Mm-hmm. That's what we're talking about, right? Intersectionality is a term coined by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw over 30 years ago to describe the experiences of bias and oppression of black women. Professor Crenshaw further defines intersectionality as a lens, a prism, for seeing the way in which various forms of inequality often operate together and exacerbate each other. When we consider the experiences of violence against a transgender black woman, for instance, she might experience abuse and discrimination due to her gender identity, transgender lifestyle, race, and other factors. Her experience has many layers and necessitates a response that reflects each and all of them. From an intersectionality perspective, providers need to understand all the factors at play for this individual in order to meet her unique needs. When we talk about intersectionality, aren't we talking about all of the encumbrances upon a person? Mm-hmm. Barriers. Mm-hmm. The barriers, the encumbrances, the hurdles. It's like... Or additional forms of abuse, additional forms of trauma. Which completely continue, like, further marginalize someone and, and mm-hmm. leave them at a loss for finding help. So intersectionality is something that you deal with, Jan, on a regular basis. And that's when a trans woman, then perhaps a trans woman of color... Again, it's a number of hurdles, barriers in, in which a person faces, which, which further marginalizes them. How do you bring them out of that? Well, it's very hard, to be real honest, uh, especially in a short time that we get to intersect with them. But it's true of all clients that have come to Genesis. She's battered and she's marginalized. She's battered, she's marginalized and has no money. Battered, marginalized, has no money and no job experience. Um, It just goes, and her faith community says X, Y, and Z, and her family said whatever. Um, What our first thing that we would do at Genesis is, are you safe? Are you safe right this minute? How can we continue that safety? If you have children with you, what has been their experience and how can 
we uh, not only reduce the PTSD symptoms that uh, the the trauma has caused, uh, but also how do we help you come together with your child, your children, for um, to to increase atta- reattachment. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many gosh, just dynamics of domestic violence that those who have these other roadblocks just heaped upon them, it's really, really hard. But the trauma, the safety are the first things that we that we look at. As you ran down that list, I thought to myself, you're defining what no hope is. Ah, well, I, the, yeah, I guess that sounded like that. Hope, no, no. Yeah. Th- these folks come to you yeah. in many cases, and they especially no if hope. they're dealing yeah. with intersectionality right. where... You know, at every turn, every last bit of right. hope is lost. Right. And so, mm-hmm. Jordan, you're dealing sometimes with the hopeless. Right. And the experience of abuse is to be disempowered. And so, when you feel hopeless and also you've been disempowered to the level of not knowing that there's anything and feeling like there's nothing, anything I try will not work. Nothing I can do is going to fix this or make this better, right? Like that combination absolutely leaves people in a very hopeless and helpless position. And so what we really try to uh, be able to step into that space with them and say, you know, even just making this phone call was absolutely a, a huge step. Like this was a scary step to make this phone call to just reach out. The first step in rebuilding their lives mm-hmm. or regaining right? It's their first step, even if they don't realize it, getting in an environment where they are loved unconditionally, Mm -hmm. even if for a short time with a safe roof over their head and a place to step away from a dark place mm-hmm. and, and really into the light. I mean, not to sound too cliche about it, but that's no. That's I kind agree. Of how I, I, envision it. I absolutely think you're right. And while they are with us, we surround them with um, clinicians who can deal with that trauma and that those emotional needs, uh, advocates who deal with those physical needs. She needs a protective order. She needs uh, an apartment. Now, those aren't quick fixes, mm-hmm. uh, but, but it's a, a, or she needs a. Um, access to civil legal representation. We describe ourselves as a full-service response for women and children who are victims of domestic violence, who are survivors of domestic violence. And so it's not just with all her heap of issues, we're just taking a bite here and taking a bite here. And then she'll look up and she'll go, you know, I never thought I could do that. I never thought I could face him in court. I never thought my child would stop blaming me. I never thought, you know, that I would realize it's not my fault. Um, So those little victories turn into hope. Little victories. And sometimes in the time in which someone is, is at your shelter, you only have a short amount of time right. to accomplish mm-hmm. a small victory. That's but correct. But every little bit helps. Yeah. And I think a lot of times when you're talking about, again, if we're speaking about the LGBTQIA plus community and marginalized communities is even just giving space for them to be heard and be believed. And that being able to be heard, being able to tell their experience and somebody say, I, I believe that that happened to you. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. Let's talk about how we can support you in this. Let's talk about how we can continue to help you increase your safety. What are other needs that you're having food wise, housing wise, um, you know, basic needs wise and being able to meet there. I think in a lot of ways that is also give the victory, the giving the hope and giving the space to be known. Yeah, or affirming for someone who's been in denial for a very long time, which again is part of the dynamic of abuse, is leave them wondering, is this really abuse? Or do they just show love differently? Did I do something to deserve it? And the list goes on to affirm for them that they're not, they're not losing their mind. They are victims is, mm-hmm. is really important. Mm-hmm. Jordan, Jan, thank you. I hope this conversation really enlightens people on how to recognize mm-hmm. abuse in their midst among 
those that they love who are in same-sex relationships or are transgender, and I hope it also inspires people to step forward and help a cause that certainly could use a lot of support. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us today. We really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation. Genesis offers a continuum of care that includes clinical counseling, legal services, advocacy, and other services that heal trauma. Other services like safety planning and offering resources to the LGBTQIA community are also critical parts of the Genesis continuum of care. If you or someone you know is in an abusive relationship, you can get help or give help at genesisshelter.org or by calling or texting our 24-7 crisis hotline team at 214-946-HELP, 214-946-4357. Data and statistics referred to in this series come from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence and the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Genesis Women's Shelter and Support is grateful to our partners for the podcast series on intimate partner violence in LGBTQIA relationships, including media host Ron Corning, On Air Media, the Conference on Crimes Against Women, House of Rebirth, and the countless number of courageous survivors of intimate partner violence who contribute to the education, safety, and healing of all people by sharing their stories and experiences. Thank you for being you.